When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 30th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. If you were listening to our programme yesterday, you might have heard me read out some text messages. One that came from James and another that came from Marie. Both callers were in touch with us to bring to our attention how an elderly couple wanted to, waited two hours for an ambulance to arrive in Drogheda on Sunday evening. That couple's daughter is Fiona O'Connell and earlier today I spoke to Fiona who told me what happened. Well what happened was um, it was my auntie's month's mine and we're all together and everybody had a lovely morning and then mum and dad went home everybody went their separate ways but my dad had a hip done just a couple of months ago so he he doesn't get out of the house much so because it was such a lovely evening and the bright nights are coming in they started going for little walks so they decided to go for a walk and my mum lost her footing and my dad, he tried to save her, but mum pulled him down. So the two of them were lying on the ground and they couldn't get up. And your so, mother is 81 years of age. Your father is 84 years young. He is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, they uh, a nasty fall. I think that's probably the way. They did. Yeah. yeah. They did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. But a girl then stopped and she tried to get my dad up and eventually she got him up, but um, they couldn't get my mum up. And that's when they called an ambulance and that's when I got the phone call to come. Mm, okay. Yeah. I'm sure you were beside yourself uh, hearing that your mother couldn't get up off the ground. Uh, so I didn't I didn't know she was lying on the ground. Oh, I was right. just told okay. they, they, yeah. they both mm. fell. Yeah. So I just thought to be sitting on the wall waiting for me to come. Okay. But so, I didn't expect to see what I saw. Where were you nearby? Yeah, I live in Cherryland. All oh, right, okay. Yeah. Okay, so your mother was on the ground uh, when you arrived. Yeah, yeah, okay. which wasn't a nice sight, to be honest, to yeah. see a mum at 84 years of age lying in the middle of the road. Mm. i just never forget it was my dying day. I'm mm. to be honest, mm. Michael. Uh, and quite, quite a number of the neighbours came out. Oh, uh, do you know what, Michael? There's great young people. People give out about young people. Um, there's, there's just brilliant people out there. And all the neighbours came out and it was really, really, uh, it was just lovely, I have to say. And they stayed with my mum for all that time. The whole lot of them stayed mm. until the ambulance came. Nice. Uh, and that took two hours? Two hours, yeah. yeah. Now, I, 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 the guards came, they blocked off the road so nobody can get by. And um, they stayed, they were there for the two hours themselves. And um, they came up to us, the guards came up to say that there's no ambulance coming. Mm. And I did feel so sorry for that guard because he was embarrassed to tell us. And, and my mum just said, I can't move. She said she kept saying to everybody, "I know it's not your fault, but I can't move." Mm. You know, so 
So eventually the guard got another guard to go actually up to the hospital to get to get an ambulance. Right. So that's that's when he said there'd be one coming, hopefully. Right. In twenty minutes. So they did come then eventually and did a great job with my mum and dad. That sounds peculiar. It sounds like uh, their radio communication wasn't working with the hospital or, or something went wrong something that they actually went, went down to the line. hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. something went wrong. Yeah. But eventually they came and, and they took her away. Yeah. Just I'm glad we didn't move them. Yeah, oh, yeah, well, I mean, I think that's the advice, isn't it? Don't move somebody. Yeah, but they did ask us to bring her down ourselves right. to the hospital. Mm. For sure, you couldn't. Mm. You couldn't. We're not professional people, you know. But um, thank God, they're mm. okay. And, and just for people outside of the area, Fiona, um, how far away is Marion Park from the hospital? Uh, five minutes. Five minutes. Literally five minutes in a car. Mm. Uh, and I'm sure five minutes in a, an ambulance or, or less with the blue lights. Uh, was any explanation yeah. given to you for why there was such a, a delay? No. Oh, um, there was another priority. That's that's what they said. Yeah, another what? Sorry. Priority. They, they had oh. to defer to somebody else. The ambulance. Mm. Okay, and uh, when the ambulance was called, uh, I take it they were told it was uh, two elderly people. Yes. Yes. They did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the guard, the guard told him that we actually a man stopped. He was going home from work from RD, and I don't even know the man's name. And he was so good. He was from the Old Malta, mm. and he said, "This woman has to have an ambulance. She cannot be moved." Right. And that's when the the, the guard said, "Right, we need this woman to get an ambulance." Mm. Okay. You know. Well, very distressing for everybody involved. Um, yeah, it's very hard when you come around the corner and see a mum lying in the middle of the road and your mm. dad sitting there with cutting his head. And it's just heartbreaking. I have mm. to be honest, Michael. Yeah. It really was. It was heartbreaking. Two hours is a, a long time to be sitting around. It must have been endless when you were waiting for the ambulance to arrive. Oh, terrible. It's, we, just, we were all saying, and all the neighbours were saying, like, thank God it wasn't raining. Mm. It wasn't oh, it yeah. was cold yeah. because... I don't know whether they would have made it, no, to be honest. Mm. You know, and to have two parents. Yeah. yeah it's, it's just, it's, it only really hit me last night by 10 o'clock. Yeah. What could have happened? Yeah, they were actually lucky. Uh, Very lucky. E- as unlucky as they were, they were actually lucky. That, uh, they, they were blessed. Yeah, it was Absolutely such a lovely blessed. evening. Yeah. 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 yeah, 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 they were blessed. So they were. Yeah. It could have been a lot worse. Yeah. So you know. what, what time did they get to, to the hospital then at? After nine. Right. Uh, and uh, how long were they in the hospital? Till three o'clock okay. that morning. Right. Um, they, they they did a CT scan on Dad's head and they did um, X-rays on Mum. Hmm. So uh, my sister, uh, the two of us went with them. So hmm. we were in the ward, but we just said, "Thank God, um, we could look after them in that ward hmm. because God of anybody that hasn't got anybody to look after them." It must mm. be terrible to be left there, okay. you know. Like it, like well, everybody was so kind. What a day! Were. What a yeah. day! Yeah, it, 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 it all worked out. They were discharged with the minor injuries, minor uh, as injuries. it turned out yeah. to be. Yeah. But uh, yeah. thank God that that was the case. But what a day! A day that will never be no. uh, forgotten by you or your family. No, definitely not. Uh, definitely uh, not. And uh, one that 
beg serious questions uh, why elderly oh, people are left sitting on lying on the road yeah. um, after yeah. an accident like that um, yeah. uh, it ended well um, but it, those questions will continue but uh, as it is a, another lovely day it's probably a bit early to say it uh, but can we wish your parents a happy anniversary they'll be 59 years married in August yeah. 6th of August, please, God. Okay. That's the bit they were saying. They were slagging them and the, the road said they were falling for each other again. Just right. keep the banter going until okay. the ambulance came, you know. Yeah. Well, but, G- G- Jean and Marion fell for each other f- <laughs> f- f- 59 years ago and they yeah. continue to do it today. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. But they're so grateful for everybody. And they think, I think the two of them think at the minute they're celebrities because the phone hasn't stopped. The house is full mm. since it happened. So... That's keeping them going, to be honest. Okay. Well, I hope they enjoyed the fuss after the trauma. <laughs> yes, it was trauma, I might be yeah. honest. Fiona, thank you very much. Thanks, thank Michael. You. Thanks, Thanks for your call. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, uh, that's uh, Fiona O'Connell. She was speaking to me earlier on. And if mum and dad are listening, uh, that's uh, Jean and Marion. We are glad uh, that you are well and very sorry uh, that uh, you were left waiting that two-hour wait for the ambulance uh, to take you the five-minute drive uh, to the Lourdes Hospital. Now, the leaders of uh, the three parties in government met yesterday and uh, there's been some tension between the two bigger parties. As you know, Fine Gael is looking for tax cuts, which they say would put a €1,000 into the pockets of hard-working people. Uh, Fianna Fáil says, uh, well, we need a summer economic statement to begin with, uh, and then the Minister for Finance will decide uh, on what uh, is to be spent where when he announces the budget in October. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News, who is also a columnist for the Meath Chronicle, joins us now. Very good morning to you, Gavin. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, today. Uh, how is this row, row going? Uh. I'm going to try and park my personal sort of contempt for this whole thing in just a minute. But how, how is it going? I uh, understand that the talks last night were fairly constructive and that uh, both of Michael Martin and Leo Varadkar kind of set out their stalls as to what they think the issues are or basically standing behind their positions. Leo Varadkar effectively saying, look, you know, Fine Gael has been about tax cuts for middle-income workers for quite a long time. This is nothing new. shouldn't necessarily be seen as a budget gambit. It is merely a case of... Fine Gael restating a position that it's had for years and continues to have. Michael Martin saying, well, that's all well and good, but you know that the timing is sensitive, that this is the sort of thing which has you know, been currently thrashed out at the highest levels of government, and I just don't see what is helpful by, by saying these things out loud, that by all means they're your policies, but there's a time and a place to say them. But neither side getting terribly head up about it, and part of the reason why they're not getting terribly head up about it, although they do have different you know, positions about the, mm. the budgetary process, is that the budget, let's not forget, is 133 days away. Mm. Uh, and I'm going to just say that again because people might be mm-hmm. forgiven for thinking about all the discussion there is about the budget. People might <laughs> yeah. be forgiven for thinking that it's today okay. or tomorrow yep. or next week or next month. It's 133 days away. Like, who knows how many British Prime Ministers you could go through in 133 well, days? Who knows? Maybe, what maybe 133. My point is that yeah. it's, it's all very early. Now, yes, there is the summer economic statements and, and one could certainly argue that um, sorry, people might not even sort of realise what, what the apparent significance of the summer economic statement is. We've been hearing about the ten billion that the government might have by way of a surplus next year. The summer economic statement is where they begin to not quite divvy it up, but where they set out how much of that will go towards paying down the national debt, how much will go towards increased spending, how much might be put towards the national wealth fund or national savings, 
and how much of it might actually be given back to workers in the form of tax cuts. Mm. So if, if, for example, you know, the, the, the Fine Gael tax cut that they want is worth about $1.5 billion to the Exchequer. So what they're clearly doing is trying to sort of, you know, uh, have the argument now that we need to leave aside one and a half or two billion euro out of that surplus to give people back some of the money that they themselves have earned, which of course they're entitled to do. But yeah, it is it is all the tatter, really. really. All right. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that Finnegale is electioneering. Uh, the only question is uh, when do they think the next election might be? Are they playing the long game or are they expecting something uh, sooner than that? Because they're setting out their stall uh, and they're very clearly saying this is Fine Gael policy. We cut taxes for middle income earners. This is who we are. This is what we are and vote for us next time around. When will the next time uh, around be is the question. Uh, well, firstly, I do, I do agree with that assessment. I don't, re- don't really think this is about positioning ahead of the budget so much as positioning ahead of the next general election because we have two two parties that largely represent the same part of the political spectrum, which in, which will have been in coalition for four or five years by the time of that election. And I think Fine Gael are trying to plant the seed in voters' minds now that they are the party of tax cuts uh, and, and to try and give themselves some kind of distinction versus Fianna Fáil. And um, when it will be, I think I know that Simon Coveney was quoted in some of the Sunday papers as having told the business lobby that it might be in November 2024. The government's thinking for that is that if you have yet another budget that has loads of goodies to give out for everyone, you announce that in October 2024, and you immediately then go to the country and ask to be re-elected so that you can implement that. Um, but I think uh, by by having this gambit now so far ahead of time, 18 months ahead of that prospective date, I think the government, and in particular Leo Varadkar and Fine Gael, are leaving their options open because there is a school of thought that if you allow the local elections next year to occur first, um, that you will almost certainly have Sinn Féin gathering up loads of seats. Do bear in mind their last local elections weren't terribly good. It was a very very difficult day for Mary Lou Macdonald. So Sinn Féin are going to make gains in most circumstances and they're likely to make pretty significant gains based on the current opinion polling. And there's a view among some in cabinet that if you allow those elections to happen first, that it creates this kind of unstoppable momentum that Sinn Féin will almost kind of seem like they're preordained for power and that you've almost lost the general election campaign before it even starts. So there are some who think, well, actually... Let's leave open the option of going to the country before the local elections next year. Let's not make a Sinn Féin government a fait accompli. Then there are others who'd say, well, actually, if you allow the local elections to happen first and people presume that a Sinn Féin government is a fait accompli, then people who want to elect a Sinn Féin government might not be as motivated to show up at the ballot box and actually do it. They might sort of think that the whole election is already predetermined and they might not actually bother campaigning and going out to vote as strongly as they could. So there's different schools of thought within government about how you exactly deal with this idea that Sinn Féin are in the ascendancy. One option might be that you'd go a little bit early and from that front, maybe it's not all that surprising that Fine Gael would be just setting out their stall a little bit early. All right. Uh, what does Eamon Ryan and the Green Party make of this? <laughs> sort of crying that the parents are arguing. Really. Yeah. It's sort of like a child in the backseat going, I don't like my mommy and daddy argue. Mm. Um, they, 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 their concern is not so much about the process so much as what, what is done with the money. That I think we've heard pretty pretty compelling arguments, to be fair, from Eamon Ryan. And actually, to be fair, some similar ones from Michal Martin, that um, one thing that we really could do with a surplus like this to get out of the, the boom and bust cycle is to set aside the money now for the capital projects that we'll know in a few years' time. Like, we all remember the way that some of these cycles work, that if, you ha- if you're planning a, you know, for example, a rail line to Navin, a-, a big one for our region, uh, if you're planning that and then suddenly the public money dries up and you don't have the money to devote to capital projects, it could be 10 years before you've got the money back again and the project is stalled in the meantime. Micheál Martin and Eamon Ryan have both set out their stalls pretty clearly 
that if we're going to have this many billions sloshing around, let's leave the money set aside now and make sure that the next time the economy contracts, because it inevitably will at some point, that we do still have the money to make sure big projects like that do actually get finished, because not alone will it be just good for the country and good for it to help bounce back, but also very good for helping Ireland to cut down on the number of cars on the roads and meeting our climate targets as well. And Eamon Ryan's concern mm. is much more about making sure those get fulfilled rather than the timing of whatever row was happening now. OK, will this be the last week the Captain meets today? Will this be the last week uh, that Simon Harris will sit at uh, the Cabinet table as Minister for Justice? Helen McEntee returns to work next week, doesn't she? And Simon Harris uh, will leave his mark uh, before he departs from the portfolio uh, of justice. Yeah, it certainly will. It's been a very um, active six-month tenure for, for uh, Simon Harris. One will be forgiven uh, for forgetting that he is actually still the Minister for Further and Higher Education because he's, so much of his time has actually been spent dealing with the justice brief. Now, I suppose um, those close to him would say when, whenever someone is taking over a job, even on a time-limited basis, they, they can't just be sitting there as a seat warmer, that there is so much stuff that needs to be done in justice that you do need to actually go and progress these things, which is why, you know, last week we saw him launching a publicity campaign about the, the reckless uh, sharing of, of intimate images and how abusive and how illegal uh, that is in certain circumstances. We've seen him talking about the need to progress body cameras for Gardaí and even the prospect of facial recognition software for Gardaí that are policing uh, the likes of immigration protests, for example. And um, even yesterday, we saw him visiting the bog where the search for Columbia McVeigh is still ongoing as well. All very much acting in the role as Minister for Justice. Um, it certainly will be a, a busy tenure, but like no doubt, as I said, you, you couldn't possibly just sort of take over from Helen McEntee and just keep the seat warm and do nothing because it is such a, a, a law-heavy brief. There's always so much legislation you have to progress that, to be fair to Simon Harris, he wouldn't be doing the job properly if he did sit on it. But as I understand it, Helen McAtee due to return on Friday. Um, so no, no harm for anyone who's coming back after a bit of a break that they might be coming back on the Friday and then immediately heading into a bank holiday weekend. It's a good way to, to dip your toe back in the water. But certainly um, Simon Harris has been a very active mm. Justice Minister. And, and one might wonder, if, if one were being cynical, um, whether that was a, a very deliberate stance on Simon Harris's role, not alone just doing the job, but also being seen by the Fine Gael faithful to do the job. Because... We were just talking about the general election a minute ago. Mm. There's many within Fine Gael who, whether they want to admit it or not, they know privately that the idea of having a fourth consecutive term in office, no matter what way the opinion polls might go in the meantime, is a stretch. Like before 2011, the party had never served two terms consecutively. Now they're in the middle of serving three. The idea of a fourth one after potentially 14 years in power is a hard sell. So everyone knows, yeah, Leo Varadkar is probably going to lead them into the next election. He might not be around for very long afterwards. And the likes of Simon Harris, still only 36, despite having been in Cabinet for as long as he is, the idea of playing a justice role, something that, that means a lot to, to the Fine Gael core vote, and to be seen to be doing a very active and very un, unrepenting job on that, um, might not be any harm for him in the long term. Mm, and he'll bring forward legislation today, which I think will go down well generally with uh, the public, uh, this ban on vaping for under 18-year-olds. Yeah, that, well, that is, it's, it's partly a justice issue and partly a health issue, but certainly it is something that a lot of people would see as being uh, a, a fairly straightforward and fairly sensible thing, that there's been a bit of an anomaly in law for a long time, that, that vaping products, which, which you know are still as addictive as, as traditional cigarettes or traditional tobacco products, um, that they have been openly marketed to teenagers and can openly be bought by teenagers. So it seems like it's a very long-standing legal loophole that the, you, can, you can do that or that they're treated in a different way to traditional nicotine products. Uh, Simon Harris and Stephen Donnelly both very keen to make sure that that gets closed off and if that happens to be one of the last things that they do at Cabinet then at least it might, would even still be one positive legacy that Simon Harris could point to in his time there. Okay and uh, busy Cabinet meeting no doubt uh, as usual today ahead of uh, the political week in front of us. 
Yeah, um, as always, because not least with all the, the government uh, proposals that they're all bringing, because they're, they, everyone always has a list of uh, proposals the length of their arm. Darrell O'Brien, no doubt, wanted to talk about the latest homelessness figures and the capital delivery and all of that front. And there's always little bits and pieces of employment legislation and other stuff all over the place. But also the government always has to deal with the um, what decide on the stance that they're going to deal with with, uh, with opposition motions. So every, every, doll, uh, every week in the doll, opposition parties get two hours at a time to raise issues of their core concern. Uh, tomorrow, the Social Democrats are raising home ownership, so that's going to prompt a discussion in Cabinet about that. Uh, but also this evening, Sinn Féin are bringing a motion about respite care services, and this is something that people may have heard being discussed on the national airwaves in the last couple of weeks, the idea that um, children with additional learning needs or severe disabilities don't have respite beds, which means that families are really living at the the, the edge of their nerves, trying to make sure that their, their children are cared for. That's being raised by Sinn Féin, and that means there's going to have to be a cabinet discussion about all of that. So it's always worth bearing in mind that no matter how much of an agenda ministers themselves might bring uh, for discussion in those matters, part of the agenda is always forced as well by the opposition parties and what they're going to raise in the dole, and uh, that might also mean that we could have perspective movement on, on either of those fronts, who knows, okay. um, after we get the, the, the readout of today's cabinet meeting. Alright, Gavin, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News, also a columnist with uh, the Mead Chronicle. Uh, just uh, to respond to one of our, our listeners asking uh, about the story of uh, the elderly couple uh, who lay on the road for two hours waiting for the ambulance to come and take them the five minute journey to the hospital. Yes, it was on Sunday, just gone the 28th of May. I'm not sure uh, why you're checking the date. Uh, maybe they were in the area or something like that. But yes, it was Sunday, the 28th of May. Now, if you want to make comment on the programme today, our telephone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. I was talking to a 13-year-old girl this week who was telling me about the local disco and she said uh, at the local disco there's three things that happen. Dancing, shifting and vaping. Uh, there should really be no surprise in that because 9% of 12 to 17-year-olds in this country vape and as you've been hearing Legislation is uh, to be introduced which will ban uh, the sale of e-cigarettes to children under the age of 18. It's expected uh, that it will be uh, in law before the summer recess. Let's speak uh, to Michael McLaughlin, Head of Advocacy and Communications with Youth Work Ireland. A very good morning to you, Michael, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Uh, I take it uh, there's no great surprise to you that a lot of young people are vaping and on a regular basis. Yeah, I think we talked about it before, and I suppose it seems as if we maybe missed a trick because vaping in the early days, I think I recall most people, was seen as a positive thing. Here's this alternative to smoking, and it was a good news story, and I think it's only over the years that sort of the, 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 the downsides have become apparent, and that's definitely the case in terms of, of young people. We saw it as a, a way out of smoking for society at large, but in some instances, in many instances, particularly younger people, it could be seen as a way into smoking, and, and that's the concern, along with a few other things as well, that's obviously led the, the government to this decision, which is, I think, broadly something that, that is welcome. Mm. Well, uh, I'm sure it'll be very welcomed uh, by parents in particular are concerned, uh, because there seems to be no control over vaping, uh, because there's no odour, there's no way of really, and you've these disposable vapes uh, as well that children are, are very fond of, uh, because it's another way of concealing it from their parents. 
yeah, and I'm not even sure if the parents would be, you know, in in, in a busy world. The parents are totally up on all the health issues. I have to do a bit of reading on it myself, you know. So I think what people want in all these things, whether it's, you know, food or drugs or legal, illegal, what we need is regulation Mm. and everything. There's there's no real free-for-all. If you're putting something in your body, there can't be a free-for-all. That can be light regulation or it can be stricter regulation. And in this instance, I suppose it's, it's a little bit easier because you can regulate the people who sell it, whereas there's other types of drugs where you can't regulate that so easily. So I think in this instance, it's a good way to go about it. I suppose it's still of a tiny concern for the idea that, you know, there still can be that way out of smoking, but that's going to be less common for people under 18. They shouldn't be as entrenched in the habit, although some would be, and mm. maybe it's something that maybe the, the legislators want to think about. But, but broadly speaking, it's easy to regulate and it can be done. I think there has to be regulation on all these things at the yeah. end of the day. Well, there is concern, obviously, about the health impacts of vaping uh, or the potential health impacts uh, of vaping uh, but I don't think they've been established definitively uh, as yet but what we do know is they're addictive and they're expensive Uh, and for young children to be going out dancing on a a Saturday night uh, with a costly habit uh, that they need to fund through the week uh, it's not really a, a good start in life is it? No, it doesn't seem to be. I'm not sure that that, that that is the strongest argument. And I think you are right, though. The jury is out on, on the health um, impact. Uh, I think the NHS have been talking about, have, have been a bit more open to it as a way out of smoking and all that. So it is a very, it's a complicated situation. But I think inevitably uh, this was going to come down the line and people can make the decision at 18 still and mm. still free and, and adults and that's probably you know no harm that you know we, we respect when you come to a certain age if you want to say look this has some implications or it costs you but you can make that decision at 18 mm. but you can't necessarily make that decision at 14. But it's terribly addictive I, I mean for young children to be taking up a, an addictive habit I don't think anybody no, no, would be happy. I mean, don't get me wrong. No one is, yeah. no one is advocating yeah. mm. or saying it's, it's a good thing. It's, it's a question. Like in all these instances, mm. do you make it better or do you make it worse? Because I presume then you like it's not quite like let's say cannabis or something where it's 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 always going to be uh, you know uh, under the counter or behind the scenes. This is something that you can walk into a shop and buy. So the regulation mm. is at point of sale, which is a plus in terms of how you can control it. But we mm. don't, of course, want to go down a road where then it goes. It does go into well, diffusion. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not even sure. I'm sure there's lots of 13-year-olds uh, who smoke cannabis uh, as well. But I, 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 as far as I know, that's not an addictive substance. Nicotine is one of the most addictive substances in the world, and uh, cannabis is illegal. But as things stand, uh, it's perfectly legal. It would seem uh, for children to be vaping. Yeah, I think on cannabis would be seen, seen as, as addictive, but I think I'm trying to try get at, I suppose, the ease of regulation and also then the idea of something going underground. Now, I, I don't think, yeah, vaping is a more of a commercial product, so it's, the chances of going underground are very, but it could still, for example, be brought in from other European countries and then you start inspecting, you know, you go down a whole road. But look, generally speaking, this is a good thing. We're not in, in any way uh, against mm. it, but I suppose... Um, but is it too late? I mean, given the amount of young children who are already addicted to vaping, uh, I mean, I think a, a good argument could be made that this ban should have been brought in a long time ago. Yeah, I think maybe we were slow to, to, to learn. And I think the, the inevitably it's understandable to some degree that people were won over by the early arguments on vaping. Here's this almost like this magic thing, you know, mm. Suddenly, with one bound for the people who are older adults who are smoking for 10, 15 years, here's a way out. And mm. actually, many people felt this is this is a good thing. But we probably did miss a trick when it came to younger people. Mm. And 
I, I still think that, you know, in terms of addiction, well, look, if the product's not available, the product won't be available. So then we have to kind of see, I think we should monitor how that goes or, or, or what happens with it. But it's, it's, as I say, it's a relatively more straightforward thing to regulate because you control the, the sale at the point of, of the retailer and that's the end of the story, if you know what I mean. You know? mm. Yeah, well, uh, it'll only be following other countries, uh, but um, I, as you say, we were slow to learn. I, I think when we missed uh, the trick, it was when uh, they started introducing the colourful packaging and indeed the flavours. If a child tries an e-cigarette now and they say, I don't like it, well, there's probably one that you do like because there's 16,000 different flavours apparently. Yeah, and it's it's very similar to, to other sort of products getting into the whole alcohol debate and things like that. There's generally just you know, very clever and very sophisticated marketing, uh, and that all has to be addressed. And I think it's look, it, it is overdue, and we have to be cautious of all those type of things. Um, but I think if something is done at the point of sale, then it, uh, clearly it will be uh, you know stamped out. But I think we have to watch and monitor and see what does happen if suddenly people, a whole range of people, suddenly aren't accessing the product. Where are they going to go? What are they going to do? Are they just going to say, well, that's fine? Or are they going to start accessing other things? So I think we need a lot of monitoring on that. Okay. We leave there, Michael. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Michael McLaughlin, Head of Advocacy and Communications with Youth Work Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Gum Litter Task Force was established some 16 years ago. And over that time, the litter from chewing gum uh, a problem that people despised uh, has uh, improved somewhat. Uh, let's speak uh, to Jonathan McDade, who's uh, the Deputy Director of Food Drink Ireland, a member of uh, the Gum Litter Task Force. Good morning to you, Jonathan. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. More people are disposing of uh, their chewing gum, they say themselves, more responsibly, but that's also showing up in uh, the overall litter figures. Yes, uh, thanks, Michael. And um, the National Literature Monitoring Survey, uh, uh, the most recent survey that they've conducted, showed that uh, back in 2007, before the Gumler Task Force uh, was established, uh, that around 26, uh, 26.4% of all litter was associated with, uh, with gum. And that has been reduced to 8.6% in the most recent survey, which is, uh, which is very encouraging. And of course, you know, this is the 16th year that we've launched uh, the Gum Litter Task Force. And uh, another encouraging stat uh, is that uh, back in 2007, I think around 49% of people were aware of how to dispose their gum uh, properly. That number has gone up to 87% in a survey that we've conducted. And we've also found that mm. uh, the biggest deterrent to gum litter is actually peer pressure, uh, which um, uh, which was an interesting find. I think about 58% of people surveyed found that uh, they would have been viewed negatively by others uh, if they were to just dispose of their gum uh, on the street. Uh, and of course, as part of this campaign uh, that we're launching, we're also making people aware of the €150 Euro fine um, as well uh, for, for littering uh, on the streets. Okay, or under a table. <laughs> I think that was yeah. one of the things. You'd sit down somewhere and uh, pull the table into you and realise you your hands in someone's uh, cast-off chewing gum. Yeah, well, actually, uh, the research that we looked at is saying that a lot of, uh, another leading factor was people having a negative experience uh, like that, whether it's on a table or a chair or whatever, or on your shoe, you know. Uh, that was also obviously a leading factor. And look, this uh, initiative uh, is, it's a joint initiative between 
the chewing gum industry, Food Drink Ireland, uh, which represents the food and beverage sector, and the Department of Environment. And we always appreciate the support uh, that uh, they give us uh, for this campaign. It's a good example of, I suppose, governments and the industry coming together to solve a a common problem. And of course, as part of the campaign, uh, we are uh, going to do a couple of things. There's a a road show where we plan to visit uh, various different towns uh, around the country. I think actually uh, for your listeners, we're going to be in Market Square RD uh, on the 21st of July. And um, at the road show, there'll be Government Task Force uh, ambassadors giving out uh, literature about uh, the fine and how to dispose your gun properly. They'll also be accompanied by uh, very brightly coloured basketball hoops and basketballs for you, for people to or passers-by to take shots at um, uh, as part of the information campaign or maybe to discover the next Michael Jordan, who knows. Uh, and then following that in the autumn, there's going to be a road show uh, for various schools uh, where we're going to have ambassadors, mm. um, kind of actors, dancers to basically demonstrate to children, uh, to pupils in schools on how to dispose their gun problems. Okay, because I was going to just ask you, um, is it young people or children uh, that you're targeting? Uh, Because a lot of adults chew gum as well. Yeah, a lot of adults do chew gum, but that's why we kind of felt we would do a uh, multi-pronged campaign uh, as well. And obviously there's a social media element to the campaign, but we figured that the best way to obviously target, uh, to target our messaging towards children is to go to the schools in October and November. And, of course, the roadshow, which will visit town squares for the general public, will kind of target, well, I suppose, children and everybody else. Mm. Long time since I was in school, but as I remember it, uh, you always had that problem with somebody else's cast-off chewing gum uh, attached to your desk when you sat down. Yeah, I think I have some unpleasant memories Mm. from that myself. So hopefully... uh, uh, with uh, another successful campaign that we could probably reduce that. It seems so harmless though, doesn't it? Uh, it, it I'm sure everybody's done it at some stage, uh, but if you take chewing gum out uh, and stick it somewhere, it's so easy to do it, but then very difficult to take it off. Yeah, and I think that was one of the reasons why, um, one of the many reasons why obviously industry and um, you know, industry and the government tried to get together because like removing it from the street also there's uh, there's a cost to that as well. Uh, it is very hard to remove, uh, but thankfully we've been seeing a lot of great progress, and we've got some great support from you know Tidy Towns committees as well as that, uh, as well as the local authorities as well, who have been supporting this campaign for for so long. Okay, interesting stuff. Uh, we leave it there. The twenty first of July, you say uh, you'll yeah. be at Market Square NRD. I'm sure people uh, will come along and uh, hope to be the next Michael Jordan, apart from anything else. Uh, but thank you, Jonathan, for joining us on uh, the program today. Jonathan McDade is uh, the deputy director of uh, Food Drink Ireland, uh, which is a member of uh, the Gum Litter Task Force, uh, established sixteen years ago. It's a joint initiative of uh, the Department of the Environment, Climate and Communications, Food Drink Ireland and the chewing gum industry. Let me bring you some of the comments uh, that have been coming to us uh, this morning. Thanks uh, to those of you who have uh, taken the time to text us or WhatsApp, as uh, the case may be. A WhatsApp message uh, from somebody who says, Good morning, Michael. I witnessed something similar to that couple in Drogheda in Dundalk a few weeks ago. A couple in their 80s fell around half ten at night. The lady lay on the ground for around two hours in the cold and the dark. The ambulance service said there were more urgent emergencies in Louth. We got a squad car around after an hour to help out. 
It's an absolute disgrace the way these people are being treated after a lifetime of contributing to society. My heart was broke to see them so upset and just left there on the footpath. God, that's really shocking uh, to think of a, a second incident. Maybe this kind of thing happens all the time and we don't know about it. But thanks to those of you who have taken the time to tell us about it. Uh, James Marie, uh, that caller there who I don't think uh, added their name to their message. Uh, and Fiona, who spoke to us uh, this morning about her parents' experience. Pat McDade of the Drogheda Labour Party texting us about the old guff, as he puts it, from Finnegale about the squeezed middle. Uh, they never mentioned that all workers on over 40,000 gained at least 831 a year in take-home pay in the last budget. Workers in this category also qualified for the 800 in the electricity credits, even if their income was a million. The 60,000 of them with a holiday home in the state got a further 800 electricity credit. Contrast this with the minimum wage workers, some of whom had up to 35% of their increase clawed back by revenue before they even got to see it. This is due to the PRSI entry level for low paid workers not being index linked. The Labour Party in the Dáil called on finance to put in index links but this was rejected. The Labour Party is now referring this anomaly to the low pay commission. Thank you Pat indeed. Pat, another Pat, this is Pat in Drum Conrad, says Michael it must be awful for people who need respite to be unable to get it. The government's answer of giving an annual respite grant to the carer for them to fund respite care is useless as there are no respite providers out there providing the service where they can buy the service from as long as that is the problem nothing can change um, we'd somebody else in touch who said good morning Michael our ministers can hop from one position to another without any experience and get away with it I, I mean a carpenter can't do the same uh, they can't, a carpenter can't suddenly become a gas fitter overnight and uh, a plaster can't do an electrician's job without a cert to prove that he knows what he's doing if they stuck to what they're trained to do uh, maybe we'd have a better country Paddy Duffy then uh, in touch too he says Finnick Gale is feeling the pressure and sounding desperate and are being populist to their perceived voter demographic their problem is their voters demographic is feeling the pressure too as they're adult children are stuck in their box rooms and they hold Fine Gael responsible for that. Thanks Paddy, thanks to everybody who's been in touch. 0419832000 if you want to ring us, text or WhatsApp 086 email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. A recent Red Sea poll has found that 67% of us uh, aren't aware of new assisted decision-making legislation. Uh, let's uh, speak uh, to Patricia Rickard-Clark, Chairperson of Safeguarding Ireland. Uh, very good morning to you, Patricia. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. This is a significant change to the way people who are not able to make decisions for the themselves or have reduced decision-making ability uh, can have decisions made. Uh, it takes away the old system of wards of court. Yes, indeed. Good morning, Mike, and thank you. Uh, this is really an important piece of legislation. A long time coming. It's been over 20 years. Uh, the Act was originally enacted in 2006 a further amending piece of legislation last year and finally it's commenced. So it's it's extremely welcome 
uh, in the sense that we have to respect a person uh, and even if their capacity is at issue or is challenged, then what the new law is saying is that that person must be supported to make their decisions personally insofar as that is possible. Mm. And the law sets out... um, a number of different mechanisms. So uh, under the old archaic legislation, which was 1871, the Lunacy Regulations Ireland Act, uh, a person either was declared of unsound mind and either could or could not make a decision. We all know that at times our our decision-making capacity might be challenged. Uh, We might have been diagnosed with dementia, but we still can make a lot of decisions for ourselves, Mm. particularly with support. So the new Act sets out different levels of uh, support that can be given to a person. At the first level is a person can appoint a decision-making assistant. They're still making their own decisions, but they're gathering, having somebody get information for them and explain that information to them. And then uh, if a person's uh, capacity is a little bit more challenged uh, and they know and they may feel unable to make decisions on their own, they can have a co-decision maker. And this would be extremely useful for very many people, say, that have intellectual disability, Mm. who need that support, know what they want and all of the rest, but they need that support to carry out their decision. Mm. Um, And then the next level, if a person has a lax capacity, it's a court application to the circuit court. Um, But of course, very importantly, the other two uh, support arrangements are making an enduring power of attorney and and, uh, an advanced healthcare directive. Mm. When you have capacity, we all should be doing this. But really importantly is this is all about the rights of the individual to be supported uh, and the right of all in society professionals, healthcare professionals, banks, uh, lawyers, etc., to give that support to the person to make their, to enable them insofar as possible to make their own decision. It was very hard not to be moved uh, by the recent story of a man with dementia uh, who his doctors uh, wanted to amputate his leg uh, and he didn't want his leg amputated. The doctors were concerned if he didn't have his leg amputated uh, that it would kill him. Uh, but he continued to say he didn't want his leg amputated. It went to the courts uh, and it was decided in in the man's favour whether um, that would shorten his life or not. His decision was respected and uh, as I recall, the judge uh, really showed great respect for the man involved. Uh, But there are very big decisions uh, that would be asked of people uh, who have challenges like that, like dementia, as you say, or people who have intellectual difficulties. Indeed. And up to now, we've tended to jump in and decide what we felt was in another person's best interest, rather than ascertaining, as the court did in that case, they ascertained that man's own wish with regard. And in his case, it was about the quality of his life now rather than the length of his life or whatever. So uh, really important that those critical issues are fully respected, provided the person, again, understands the consequences of those decisions. And the court decided he did understand those consequences. Mm. Um, The ward of court is gone. Um, Many people uh, would have been a a ward of court and many people would have had people in their families who would have been a a ward of of court. Uh, In those circumstances, uh, what's the decision now? It's one of these five options, but how is that decided? 
Uh, well, there will be a review of all current wards of court. There are about 2,000 wards of court. They, their capacity will be reviewed. And again, um, the wards of court system was a very blunt in- instrument, as I said. The court decided whether the person had or had not capacity. Under the new arrangement, there will be a review of all of those wards. And then uh, it will be ascertained whether they could actually uh, manage with uh, one of the decision supporters or the court will appoint a decision-making representative um, and more importantly we have a new state agency called the Decision Support Service. Mm. Up to now there's very little oversight of people who are managing other people's affairs. Under the new arrangement there is that Decision Support Service. So those various different decision supporters will be reporting to that uh, Director of Decision Support Service uh, and ensuring that uh, Director will be ensuring they're carrying out their functions and they're carrying out the wishes of the person and they're having the person participation so far as possible. So really Mm. important uh, new arrangements. So it's Uh, the state agency who will decide, uh, this state agency called uh, the Decision Support Service, who will decide whether you need to be assisted uh, in making decisions, uh, whether you need somebody to make decisions on your behalf or or to represent you during uh, decisions being made. No, the state agency will not make those decisions. So I decide myself whether I need a decision-making assistant or a co-decision maker. If I lack capacity, uh, have I put in place my EPA or my advanced directive? If I haven't, then the court makes a decision. But the, the decision support service has oversight of all of those arrangements. Right. Uh, oversight of those arrangements. Okay, yes. I get you. And the EPA is the enduring power of attorney. Enduring power of attorney. Sorry. Okay. Yes, uh, the uh, advanced uh, care directive. So EPA uh, enduring powers of attorney cover property and affairs mainly, and the advanced health care directive covers your health care and treatment decisions. Really, really important. Again, mm. important for professionals. They know your wishes with regard to your health care. Uh, really, really mm. important issue. Uh, and it's your wish uh, and you may wish that that person would be your next of kin uh, you may wish otherwise Indeed and again uh, to now uh, a lot of people there is the myth that uh, next of kin have a right to make decisions on behalf of their their close family member that's not correct that has not been the law for many years but now this is very clearly uh, stating that the person assisting you and supporting you must have the authority to do so. Uh, and that can be a, a close relative, but it, it need not be a close relative. It's up to the person to decide. Or the court then, if the court is making that decision, the court will look at whether that person is suitable, what is the relationship, is there a relationship of trust. So again, the suitability of the supporter is really important as well. Okay. It's a significant change, as you say, Patricia. Thank you indeed for explaining it to us uh, because uh, as we said at the outset the vast majority of people are are not aware of uh, this change and it is a change in law uh, which will be hugely important for people who are affected obviously thank you indeed thank you for for joining us this morning Patricia Rickard Clark chairperson of Safeguarding Ireland Uh, now let me just uh, go back uh, to the comments very interesting comment that came to us uh, about chewing gum uh, from somebody who says I, I used to chew or I started chewing gum as a, a teenager uh, and this is the interesting bit uh, I thought they uh, said that the reason they were chewing gum was because their face used to go red when they were mixing with others uh, I take it uh, I'm putting two, and to, two together I hope I'm coming up with the right answer but I, I take it it was a kind of a crutch um, to 
uh, distract um, you from the anxiety that you felt um, when you were mixing with others uh, and helped you to stop getting embarrassed. Uh, but anyway, that's what they did. Uh, they used to chew gum uh, because they were nervous around people. And for the past three years, um, they've stopped. They've stopped buying chewing gum altogether. Uh, so far, it must have been an awful habit. Uh, so far, so good, though. I don't miss it, but I I, I always put my gum in a bin uh, when I did chew gum. Thank you very much indeed for sharing that. Uh, I think that's a very interesting and very honest uh, story. I think we all have our, our crutches in life. Uh, but uh, thank you, as I say. If you want to make a comment on the programme today, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 041-983-2000. You can text us or WhatsApp. It's the same number for a text message or a WhatsApp message. 86 658 Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, a report by Grant Thornton, which was commissioned by the Society of St. Vincent de Paul, is said to be published in the next hour or so. It's called Closing the Gap, What is Needed to End Voluntary Contributions in Post-Primary Schools. Let's speak now to Tricia Keelty, who's Head of Social Justice with St. Vincent de Paul. Very good morning to you, Tricia. Thanks, as always, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, as part of uh, this uh, report, 1,500 parents uh, were surveyed. Tell us about the findings, if you would, please. Good morning, Michael. Yes, that's right. So it's a survey of parents, but also we spoke with school principals to understand the issue of voluntary contributions, both from parents' perspective, but also from the perspective of schools. And I suppose the main findings from the survey with parents is that 86% reported that their post-primary school um, requests a voluntary contribution so it's very high the number of schools that do request um, voluntary contributions and I suppose what's worrying for us is that 80% stated that the voluntary contribution was not clearly communicated as being optional. So we know from our working communities that back to school time is a very worrying time for families, particularly those on low incomes. It can put a lot of pressure on households. So if parents feel that the contribution is not optional, it puts additional pressure on those households. But we also know from talking to schools that they are underfunded. They're struggling to keep the lights on and that's Mm. why they have to make these requests. Right. Uh, And that's what they spend the money on, is it? Uh, uh, Light and heat? That's it, yeah. So Mm. when we spoke with, with school principals, it was those very basic things that this voluntary contribution was used for. So their electricity costs, their um, photocopying costs, uh, lockers, journals, things like that. Um, they It ranged from €30, Euro, this is what parents told us, up to €500. Euro. Some schools were requesting that amount from parents, but the average was €140 Euro mm. per child. Okay. Um, yeah. If you're being asked to voluntary uh, contribute 500 euro or 550 euro or I think I heard somebody say 600 euro um, what do you do if you can't uh, afford it I suppose you just say I, I can't afford it and I'm not going to voluntarily pay it or does the old situation continue where it's obligatory to pay the voluntary contribution 
Yeah, I suppose there there is a communications issue here because some schools don't use the term voluntary. They may say school contribution or parent contribution. And I suppose what we're saying is that we need to have very clear guidelines for schools to say when you are communicating with parents, you must make sure that it is optional um, and that parents, particularly on low incomes, uh, know that they don't have to pay this to put themselves under pressure and that their child will not be denied access to any kind of school facilities as a result of that. So that's really important. Um, but at the same time, we have to address the underfunding of schools because it's not fair to ask that pressure for schools to ask parents to fill very vital funding gaps in the school system. So really it's about um, extra regulation, but also more funding for schools. So we want to end this system that unfairly penalises families on low income. Mm, but each school gets a capitation grant and that is intended to pay these bills light and heat is it not Uh, but obviously what they're being given isn't enough to cover the bills No it's not and the capitation grant per student was €345 back in 2010 it was cut during um, the recession and it hasn't increased with um, inflation so we obviously know households across the country are dealing with very high energy bills but so are schools and the capitation grant hasn't increased with inflation. So to keep its real value, it actually would need to be €422 per child, um, and that's what we're calling for to be increased to. Right. Um, Education should be free in this country. Absolutely. It's it's one of the best investments government can make, giving children access to education, that they can access it on an equal footing is so important if we are to end poverty, um, that intergenerational cycle of disadvantage. So really, it's important now. We've seen progress in the provision of free school books at primary level, and we need to see that extended to secondary school, and we need to see an end to voluntary contributions as well. All right. Uh, we can listen to what the Minister for Education, Norma Foley, had to say about this in uh, the Dáil a couple of weeks ago. The government believes and is very clear that uh, a rise in cost of living should never be a barrier to education. And as part of the cost of living measures, you'll be aware, announced in Budget 23, the government pro- provided an additional €90 million euro to schools as once-off additional capitation funding. This investment, uh, in addition to a range of other funds being made available to schools, sought to ensure that an increased operational cost for schools were not passed on to parents. In the context of the current cost of living crisis and the additional funding being made available to schools, I firmly believe that schools should not seek additional voluntary contributions from parents. All right. What I'm hearing Minister Foley say there is uh, parents shouldn't be asked to hand over such big amounts of money to schools. Certainly, uh, they shouldn't feel obliged to. uh, And if there was a problem with the capitation grant, uh, that should have been solved by an additional €90 million in funding. Yeah, look, absolutely, that extra funding has helped for that one-off year. But this issue isn't going to go away. The capitation grant was already inadequate before this cost of living crisis. And while inflation is moderating, it doesn't mean that energy prices are going to drop. So what we're asking the Department of Education, do a proper assessment, see what the income is to schools, what are their expenditure costs, and make sure that it's adequate so that parents aren't asked for voluntary contributions. And if schools are going to ask for voluntary contributions in the interim, that there's proper regulation to ensure that no student is singled out, that parents are clearly communicated that it is optional and that they don't have to pay, and that's really important as well. Okay, I want to ask you about children being singled out. 
uh, because the minister spoke quite extensively uh, about this and she was saying you are not under any obligation to pay. Uh, these contributions. Whilst voluntary contributions can be requested by schools, it must be made absolutely clear to parents and guardians that there is absolutely no requirement to pay and that in making a contribution they are doing so of their own choice with no compulsion to pay. Right. If parents don't pay, you say, Tricia, that on occasion at least, children are being singled out. In what way? So there was some testimony from parents in the survey that was really concerning for us. Now, it was a small number of respondents, but they had said that their child was either singled out for parents not paying, so names written on blackboards, um, or they were denied access to things like lockers or homework journals. Other parents also said that they were given the impression that if they didn't pay, their children would be denied access to this. So that's that's concerning for us. And look, as I said, most schools are cognizant of the impact of cost of living on parents, uh, cognizant of the experience of poverty but some schools need to do better in that regard and I suppose really it's important that just to say even one instance of that is, is not okay and um, so really from our point of view when communications are going out around voluntary contributions it should only be to be between the school and the parent the child or the student should never be involved in that discussion or conversation. Mm. Sounds like they're making you an offer you can't refuse. Yeah, I suppose it, it, it's uh, it's very difficult. And, you know, parents um, do tell us, you know, that it, it, they do feel a lot of pressure. But also the schools that spoke to us were completely cognizant of that. And some had really good examples of, you know, parents who were able to pay um, and then not uh, asking parents who were, you, they knew that the circumstances at home were difficult. And then they could ring, ring sense that funding to ensure every child in the school had access to to the facilities and things like that. Mm. But really, it, it, it fundamentally comes back to the funding issue. Um, and that really needs to be addressed if we want to end um, mm. the system of, of contributions. I imagine some parents listening to us uh, this morning are, are scratching their heads at uh, this. Uh, they may be parents who were asked for thirty euro or a little more than that. Uh, but it, it's uh, when you're asked for these big figures, five hundred and fifty euro, uh, on top of the books, on top of the uniform, on top of everything else, it, it's a lot of money and can come as a, a shock to people. How do people cope if they haven't got it? So you know what was worrying for us is that. Um, 86% had reported that they had cut back or deferred daily expenses, other essential expenses, to pay for voluntary contributions. And that would really uh, mirror what we see when families call us at back-to-school time. Maybe they've paid the contribution, they've paid for the school books, and they have no food, or they have a bill now, a electricity bill that they can't pay as a result. We have other parents who may have gone into debt um, to pay it as well, and I suppose really that's fundamentally not right um, for children's access to education that people would be sacrificing their other needs or getting into debt or borrowing as a result of it. It it would seem very, very wrong, particularly wrong in a country uh, that prides itself in uh, providing free education uh, up to uh, the end of second level. Voluntary um, contributions to schools um, are, are from parents and guardians. There is absolutely no compulsion on parents to provide any type of contribution to the school. It is explicitly underlined in, as I said, Section 64 of the Education Act that education in its purest sense is free of charge. Right. From what the Minister is saying there, Tricia, it sounds as though it's illegal for schools to insist on contributions being paid. 
The circular as it stands makes it illegal to request fees, but voluntary contributions are allowed, but it must be made clear that they are, in fact, voluntary. And I suppose what the research is telling us is that that's not always clearly communicated Mm. with parents. So we really need to update the circular and that's one of our recommendations to have clarity in relation to that so that Mm. parents don't feel that they have to pay. Okay, well uh, whether they're presented to parents as fees that you have to pay or as a voluntary contribution which is the way they should be presented uh, it's still illegal if there's consequences surely uh, for parents who don't pay, who can't afford to pay, uh, who believe that they've paid uh, enough in a country where education should be free anyway if their child uh, is singled out and they're denied a, a locker or they're shamed from the top of the classroom Yeah absolutely and we, we don't want to see that practice um, happening at all, even one case is too many um, but I think when we have this discussion and I think there's a lack of clarity around the guidelines and that's why it's important that it's reviewed so that schools know exactly what is permissible, what is legal and parents also have that information. And I suppose when we're developing this, it's important to include parents in that conversation Mm. um, with schools and with the Department of Education to ensure that that guideline and that circular is very clear in relation to it. Okay, and I suppose the reason I was playing all these clips of uh, Minister Foley is because she was very, very clear uh, from the Minister's point of view. uh, There's no grey area in all of this. Uh, You can ask for fees, as you said, uh, but they have to be on a voluntary basis. You can't insist on people paying fees, let let alone penalise children because their parents can't uh, afford those fees. Uh, You believe that that something has to change. Uh, where does that change come from? Uh, where are you looking uh, for direction on this? Is it from the minister, from the government? Is it from the school system? So it's both. And I think it has to be led by the minister and the Department of Education. So as I mentioned there, it's a new regulation on voluntary contributions to have that clarity about what is um, permissible and what is not. And then I suppose we can't have a system where you can't ask for contributions, but then schools are left short. We had a school who was €40,000 in debt um, every year. They had a deficit of that every year. So we can't continue to not fund the school. So the capitation grant has to go up. And I suppose there's other things that will help in terms of reducing the cost. Obviously, extending school books to secondary school is something that we advocate for and we want to see progress um, as soon as possible. But there's also things like extracurricular activities that Um, can come up like school trips and things like that that put pressure on families. So creating a fund by the Department of Education that schools can use to support the participation of of students in low-income families is also something that we would like to see. Can I I ask you just one last question because I I know you've uh, to go uh, for the launch of uh, your report. Uh, But if you're asked for a voluntary contribution, if you haven't got the money and you say no and then your child is singled out, can you complain or where do you complain to and can that problem be solved uh, if, let's say, the school is denying your child a, a locker, can the department or whoever you complain to say, hello, you can't do that, uh, you have to treat that child like every other child? Yeah, no, absolutely. If, if that's happening, you can complain to the Department of Education, but also the managing body that the school is, whether that's a vocational school or a community school as well. So if, if that's happening, that people can have a, 
uh, an option to, to make a complaint in regard to that. Okay, Tricia, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Tricia Keelty, who is uh, the St. Vincent de Paul Head of Social Justice. Uh, that report is going to be published now in the next half hour. But if you are a parent, uh, and uh, you've ever wondered if there is a, an obligation on you to pay these voluntary contributions, let's hear one last time from the Minister. I want to be very clear in terms of, of voluntary contributions, and I was very clear when the €90 million Euro, um, was being made available in terms of um, additional supports to the schools. It is not at all preferable. I do not in any instance see why any parent should be asked to support a school in terms of voluntary contribution. There you go. That's uh, the Minister for Education, Norma Foley. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, it's hard to think of anybody assaulting a nurse, let alone uh, the stats from uh, the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation, which is telling us that 848 nurses and midwives have been assaulted. In the first four months of this year, Maurice Sheen, Industrial Relations Officer with uh, the INMO, is on the line. Good morning, Maurice. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. This is just very hard to believe in actual fact. Yeah, the the figures uh, are very disturbing. And you've given one figure for the first quarter of this year, 848 assaults on nurses and midwives. But over the period of time, since 2020, 8,586 nurses and midwives have been about, have been assaulted in the workplace. And uh, along with that, there are certain legal measures which seem to be underutilised or not used at all. Uh, in fact, there has been zero prosecutions uh, for assaults on nurses in that four-year period or three-year period. Right. Um, uh, You could face seven years in prison at the moment. It has to be increased to 12 years, isn't it? That's correct. That's on the, uh, that's in the offing now. The the, the Taoiseach and Mm. the relevant minister have said there'll be an increase uh, in the penalty from seven years in prison. But there hasn't been as much as a slap on the wrist. Well, you see, the thing is, it hasn't been used. Now, obviously, Mm. it's sending a signal to, to, to the public at large. But what we're saying that is there needs to be far more support of these legislative measures in the workplace when the assaults do take place uh, management in each and every workplace needs to support the individual staff to take the serious complaints to the Gardaí. Right. Uh, Ten nurses uh, will be physically, verbally or sexually assaulted at work today. That's the statistic we have. And just as a point of interest, it just so happens I'm attending a meeting of nurses tomorrow where there have been uh, serious assaults uh, in a particular hospital in Dublin North, uh, in the northeast area of the country. And these nurses have been going to work over the last 30 days, never knowing whether they're going to be bitten, spat at or punched. And this is not from members of necessarily of the public but it's from patients who are seriously challenged with special needs, but the appropriate protective measures are not in place on a daily basis uh, to ensure this type of behaviour is not repeated. Okay, uh, you're talking about people who you ordinarily wouldn't prosecute because of uh, their behaviour. Correct, yes. So whilst the Criminal Justice Act can deal with people 
who know what they're doing and who are being belligerent in the hospitals and other health uh, locations. Of course, we have also the problem of patients who are particularly challenged uh, with special needs. And what needs to be done there is we need to have very good risk assessments. We need to have adequate staffing. Uh, We need to have proper governance and structure, not just during the day, but 24 hours 7. Right. Uh, And uh, is it commonplace then for people uh, to go into hospital um, to receive treatment and end up being belligerent and uh, assaulting nurses? Well, it's the statistics speak for themselves and uh, just before I came on I was just trying to work out the, the percentage it, it looks like over 1% of nurses will be assaulted this year so it obviously doesn't happen every day mm. in every workplace but it is a regular feature and what compounds the situation is the, the overcrowding the staff shortages which I've discussed with you before on a previous occasion, that compounds the incident, people waiting in hospital for long periods of time, not knowing Mm. when they're going to be seen, and the frontline staff not being able to tell them when they're going to be seen, and the frontline staff have to take, or do take, Mm. a lot of the abuse for, for decisions that they're not responsible for making. Yeah, well, there is no justification for that type of behaviour, even if uh, people are frustrated waiting a, a long time in hospital. And undoubtedly, it has a, a terrible impact on uh, the people who are providing them with the care that they need. It's almost uh, ironic. It's something that's been recognised by the HSE, it seems, according to the Medical Independent, uh, which has had sight of uh, the HSE's corporate risk register, which identifies 21 risks and risk number 20 is workplace violence and aggression. It says there's a risk that the exposure of staff to work-related violence and aggression, including intentional or unintentional physical assault and verbal abuse, could seriously impact on the physical and psychological health, safety and well-being of staff. Absolutely. And what we're trying to do is to encourage management and also the Health and Safety Authority, who, which is the statutory body responsible in this area, to encourage a zero tolerance for any form of assault, physical violence, or even threatened assault or physical violence in the workplace. We have to encourage that type of culture from now mm. Yeah, and that seems to be the corporate position because they talk about that potential violence and how it diminishes the quality of working life for staff. It compromises organisational effectiveness and impacts negatively on the provision of care services. But they say that it's due to the variable implementation of relevant policies, inadequate response plans being in place to remediate staff and poor monitoring of and response to incidents of violence and aggression towards staff. Um, Is this um, something uh, that individual hospitals and healthcare centres are responsible for themselves? Yes, well, I'm not going to name any hospital, but I I cited a case that I'm dealing with at the moment where I'm meeting the staff tomorrow. Very serious injuries. The staff have uh, actually sent me photographs of their physical injuries. And there is a tendency, there's a tendency among senior management to downplay the seriousness of this matter. Uh, 
And there really has to be a partnership approach between a number of agencies in order to get those figures down. The number of agencies are the hospital management themselves, ourselves as a union, the health and safety authority, which have a far greater role to play in this area. In fact, we're looking for a special division of the health and safety authority to address the issues in the health sector, over 100,000 people employed. And also, of course, the the, the, uh, the Guardian, but cooperation between those four stakeholders, serious cooperation can help uh, ameliorate the position. And not to mention that every time somebody is dealing with uh, this type of violence, whether it be from members of the public or sometimes from patients, that's time uh, that's not used for patient care. And is there a duty of care that employers have to their staff? Uh, uh, and you would argue in the INMO that uh, employers should be prosecuted if they fail in that duty of care. Yeah, the Health and Safety Authority. So, uh, there should be regular inspections. The Health and Safety Authority have the power to make inspections in the workplace. And if they come across employers who are not complying with their duties under the health and safety legislation, then they should prosecute. Right. Uh, you talk about more than security staff. Uh, every hospital in the country, I think, has security staff now, don't they? Yeah, but uh, it's, an, it's enough security staff. Right. And security staff in the hospital 24-7, hmm. and particularly when there are situations that are challenging, that they're, they're there besides in, in the challenging situation rather than at the other end of the hospital when by the time they get to, to the incident, the damage has been done. Mm. It's very hard to understand, Morris. Uh, forgive me, uh, I mean, uh, security staff in hospital are, are, are relatively new uh, to me. Uh, and I do remember at one point thinking, God, do we really need security staff? That seems like a, an awful waste of money. Uh, unfortunately, it seems to be uh, that it's very necessary spending and we should be spending more on it. it, it but what's at the heart of this is how people are behaving individually. Yeah, well, I, I suppose in society, generally, behaviours are changing. There's there's no doubt about that. And in my experience, uh, the violence and aggression displayed in the hospitals has increased. And simply, nurses are doctors, right? Their, their duty, their, they've got clinical duty, but they're not supposed to be trained in actually physically controlling people who are difficult so there is a need. There is a need for security staff. There is a need for 24-7 cover. And uh, unfortunately, that's the way things are. Yeah. I'm not sure if sad is uh, the right word, uh, but it seems the right word to me. A sad situation, if you understand what I mean. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm. Indeed yeah. it is. Because many of the nurses who have been assaulted, uh, some of them are not returning to work. Some of them are leaving the profession. Well, we don't have statistics for that, but we, we have anecdotal evidence of people who have been assaulted and they don't return to work or they leave the profession or they go elsewhere. Mm, I can understand that. Uh, it's not 
uh, something that anybody should have to endure. Um, but what was that figure again? 848 nurses in the first four months of this year have been assaulted. It's just dreadful. Yeah, yeah in the first yeah. quarter, yeah. yeah. Okay. Morris, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Morris Sheehan, Industrial Relations Officer with the INMO, that's the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation. Some comments. A lot of people in touch about voluntary contributions. Jennifer thinks that voluntary contributions need to be done away with once and for all. They put parents under too much pressure. She remembers in her son's school that unless the contributions were paid up front, students were denied access to the lockers or other facilities in the school, which she thought was very unfair. And it also let other students know if a pupil's parents hadn't paid the contribution. Thanks for your call Jennifer, some WhatsApp messages uh, that have come to us uh, about that. Uh, One uh, from somebody who says, Michael, the voluntary uh, contribution to schools like the public service card is not compulsory, just mandatory. Angela, thank you for your message. She says that they say it's a voluntary contribution, but if you don't pay it, your child won't get a locker. That's the threat that was over my head in a secondary school. And if you paid late, your child got uh, the top or the ground locker, which they would be ashamed to have. Uh, thanks uh, for that, Angela. Um, we'd uh, John Conlon in, in touch with us who says, where did the phrase free education come from? I'm 55 years of age and it's never been free in my time. John is Bally McKenney and thank you indeed for your WhatsApp message today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual around this time, on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally. Perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Olga Bacon of Trim Garda Station joins us for this week's report. Thanks uh, for doing that, uh, Garda Bacon. And we're going to begin... Uh, with an appeal for information about a murder that occurred in Dundalk. Yes, good morning, Michael. Guardian Dundalk are investigating the murder of a woman who was discovered in residence on Bridge Street in Dundalk on Wednesday the 24th of May. A postmortem was completed. However, Guardian are not releasing any details for operational reasons. We're appealing to any witnesses and are particularly appealing to any persons who were in the vicinity of Bridge Street, Dundalk, on the afternoon or the evening of Wednesday, the 24th of May. We're asking anybody with any information to contact Dundalk Garda Station on 042-938-8400. OK. Uh, very uh, serious uh, case, obviously, uh, and uh, the loss of life uh, is uh, never something uh, that any of us take lightly. Um, it's quite remarkable uh, that we have three fatal road traffic collisions to report on this week. The first of these in Drogheda. Yes, Michael, the Cardia Drogheda Station are investigating a fatal road traffic collision that occurred on West Street on Thursday, the 25th of May, at around quarter past two in the afternoon. A man in his 80s was taken to the hospital where sadly he lost his life after this collision. We're appealing to anyone who's in the area, pedestrians and any other road users who witnessed the accident or may have dash cam footage to please contact Drogheda Station on 041 987 4200. 
Another life lost on the roads uh, to report on next and uh, hopefully people who may have witnessed uh, this particular incident uh, may be able to assist you at Ross Cross Tara. Yes, so Gardaí at Ashburn Garda Station are appealing for witnesses to another fake road traffic collision involving a car and a motorcycle which occurred at Ross Cross Tara on Sunday the 28th of May at approximately 6.15pm. The motorcyclist was a male in his 50s and was seriously injured. He was removed from the scene to James Connolly Memorial Hospital in Blanchetown where sadly later he passed away. We're appealing again to any road users who may have witnessed the accident or again anyone with dash cam footage to please contact Ashburn Garda Station on 018010600. Uh, a third life uh, that uh, was lost on uh, the roads in another road traffic collision. Um, again, you're appealing uh, for anybody who may have witnessed this, uh, and this uh, particular incident happened in Dulik. Yes, yeah, so Gardaí in Late Tanger Station are investigating this third fatal road traffic collision which occurred at Prior Land, Dulik, on Thursday the 28th of May between 11.30 and 11.45pm. This vehicle had been travelling from the art cat direction towards Dulik on a local road where the, the collision occurred. And again, we're appealing to any road users who may have witnessed the accident or again has dash cam footage to please contact Ashburn Garda Station on 018010600. Or for any of these incidents, you can also contact the Garda Confidential Line on 1800 one. Our sympathies too to uh, the families of each of uh, the three people who lost their lives uh, on roads locally over the course of uh, the last week and their families and friends. And uh, we'd ask people listening to us uh, this morning uh, to think about their safety and the safety of others uh, when they're driving and uh, to do all of uh, the things that they've been trained to do when they learned how to drive as well, obviously, but to be as safe as possible. We've a number of burglaries uh, to report on this week as well. The first of these in Trim. Yes, Trim Gardaí are investigating two burglaries which occurred on Wednesday last, the 24th. So the first burglary occurred in the Borgs Mill, Newtown Moyna area sometime between half past five in the evening and ten past eleven at night. The second burglary occurred in the Newtown Abbey area sometime between ten to five in the evening and 7.20pm. Anyone who may have been in the areas during these times and notice anything suspicious or out of the ordinary are asked to contact Trim Garda Station on 046-948-1540. Another burglary then to report on in Dundalk. Yes, Garda and Dundalk are investigating a burglary at Custom Coffee on the Old Newry Road in Dundalk. The business premises was broken into in the early hours of Sunday, 28th of May at around 3.30am. We're looking to speak to anybody who may have been in the area at the time and you can contact the dock at the station on 042-938-8400. And the final appeal today is for information if uh, people can assist you uh, about a burglary that happened in Drogheda. Yes, the Gardaí at Drogheda Garda station are investigating a burglary that happened at the Vodafone shop on the, in the M1 retail park there in Drogheda. This happened again in the early hours of the morning between 3 and 4am on Monday the 29th of May. The business premises broken into and a number of items were stolen. Again, we're looking to speak to anybody who may have been in the area or may have any information about this incident. And you can contact Drogheda Garda station on 041-987-4200.
Okay, so before you leave us uh, this gorgeous Tuesday morning, Garda, um, uh, good morning for a swim, but uh, I know you'd want to appeal to people to think safety. Absolutely. So anybody going out there in the water, be it swimming, angling, boating, whatever your choice of activity is, we're asking people not to swim alone. Look out for safety equipment, no flags, and to obey them. Never to use inflatables. There's a lifeguard station, swim in front of it, swim parallel to the shore. If you're not familiar with what the water you're going into, see can you speak to a local first. Always wear a life jacket if you're out boating. Leave word ashore of your plans and carry a means of communication, be that your mobile phone or a VHF radio in a waterproof container. If you see anybody in difficulty in the water, don't think that somebody else is trying. Either dial 999 or 112 and ask for the Coast Guard. And we're just asking people to be aware of their own abilities in the water and those that are in the care, especially if you have children around. No matter what your ability is, anybody can drown, but we shouldn't. You can also get a lot more information on watersafety.ie. Garda Olga-Bacon of uh, Trim Garda Station, thank you very much indeed. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Some comments before we leave you today, thanks to Tom, who says, Quick question, Michael. Will you be contacting our local county councillors before they have uh, their June meeting to elect a new mayor for Drogheda? albeit a pretend mayor. I think it's very important that they answer to the people before they enter their pact to stop certain elected councillors from becoming mayor. I think this is very important, especially when we have so many unelected people sitting at the table who have a vote. It's time to make them face the people, Michael, says Tom. Thank you indeed, Tom. It's only three, isn't it? It's only 30%. That's three out of ten of the councillors in uh, Drogheda Urban and Drogheda Rural. Uh, it is a lot, actually, isn't it? Three out of ten uh, who were not uh, elected uh, but are sitting councillors. I suppose that's the way of the world. Thanks uh, for that, Tom. Uh, Margaret in touch with us uh, to say what happened to that elderly couple in Drada is a total disgrace. The downgrading of services in, in some of our hospitals, which includes Our Lady's Hospital in Navan, does not help the situation. It has to be bypassed, so you have to go to the Lourdes where it's packed. It's more hospitals and beds we need, not less. When will the powers that be wake up to the fact that the population of the country is growing? It'll continue to grow. It's like they're trying to fit square pegs into round holes. Uh, that doesn't work and it never will. We need our hospital in Navin. It's unfair on staff and other hospitals who are overworked and unfair on patients who have to wait hours or days before they're seen. The heads of the HSE need to spend a full day in every A&E in the country to see exactly what goes on. It's an eye-opener that they need. It should be compulsory that they do that. How many at the head of the HSE are medical professionals? Asks Margaret. That's the final word. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.